0: Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the podcast at Google, Apple, Spotify, basically anywhere that you uh, listen to your podcasts and uh, as the Sonic Cinema Podcast and in addition to the regular podcast episodes like this, You can also uh, listen in on interviews that I've had with uh, various filmmakers and actors over the years as part of their uh, PR for their films. Most recently, I got a chance to uh, talk to Mickey Uh Reese and uh, Molly Quinn about their horror drama, Agnes. It came out on uh, December 10th, and it's well worth checking out, I think. And uh, that's on the uh, Sonic Cinema podcast, although you can also see that embedded with the uh my movie review on Sonic Cinema you can also check out the Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic there you will get deep dives you will get early access to movie reviews and a bunch of uh other stuff and especially with uh film festivals coming up in the first few months of 2022 as well as the Oscars uh you'll be uh treated to uh some some extra things when it comes to that, and that is at patreon.com backslash songs. So we normally uh we normally discuss horror primarily in October, but whenever uh Phil Faso is up for uh talking about horror, we we tend to make an exception for that. And in this particular case, this is going to be an episode that works within the parameters of I somehow sort of wrap my got myself into uh, reflecting on the uh, 1996 movie year on a larger scale than I expected. And uh, today we're going to be talking about four horror movies from that particular year, Uh, most of which have, you know, I think all of them to a certain extent have some value, uh, if only because some of them teach you sort of like how not to make a movie. And so, uh, joining me once again to talk about horror is Phil Faso. Thank you very much for joining me tonight.
1: Well, first, I'd like to give my title of Sonic Cinemas pur- purveyor of the putrid. So <laughs> I seem to be along the worst films possible. So I think I'm now Fasso, Sonic Cinemas purveyor of the putrid. Sound good? <laughs> that
0: that sounds good. Yeah i i've been uh, I've been. After watching one of these films uh, yesterday, I've been I've been giving Phil crap on Facebook uh, <laughs> about how he he almost invariably brings uh, terrible movies to the Song Cinema podcast. I, I would it's funny though because I would say we've arguably not the Song Cinema podcast has arguably not discussed a worse one than one of the four that we're gonna be talking about. And uh, I'm, but I'm still looking forward to that discussion because it's such a fascinating discussion for so many reasons. Um, so many reasons. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I so this this year in horror was really interesting, and for me, it kind of was a reintroduction to the genre because as I was starting to get more and more into. Films and basically starting to watch as much as I could. And this year was kind of the... In 96 was kind of the year that that started in. I got more into watching horror movies. And all four of these that we're going to be talking about tonight, as well as other ones like Thinner, an adaptation of Stephen King's Thinner, Thinner, the Crow of Angels, which is theoretically a horror movie. Uh, but you know, it's it's an it's a sequel to the uh Brandon Lee film. Um not a very good sequel, but I could go for an entire podcast episode just on that that one. And then we also got From Dust till Dawn. We also got Bordello Blood. We 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 got a number of horror titles here. The four that we're talking about. They, they kind of run the gamut of the types of horror that you could expect in movie theaters. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting bunch, even if it's not entirely a successful
1: one. I think the interesting thing about this is... We're going to talk about Scream. So this is like... We're talking just on the cusp of pre-Scream. Mm. Scream sets off that whole... Um, Ironic post ironic thing with horror movies and you know experimental stuff. Harrys a few years, doesn't last long, but does it does affect horror movies for two or three years there. But right mm-hmm. now we're still in that middle of the malaise, where it's not like the '80s where it's all slashes. You know, you kind of like thematically, you're all over the place as far as horror goes in 1990. Just kind of interesting, I think.
0: Yeah, it definitely is, and it, it's funny. One of the ones we're not talking about tonight is uh, from Dust till Dawn, and I actually just re-watch that and it's like i hated that movie when it came out but it it's funny like a lot of movies around that time i couldn't necessarily tell you why i hate it at the time it just didn't work for me um sure. now i watch it and you know it's saying. i get in i get involved with what it's trying to do i enjoy what it's trying to do to a certain extent i still don't think it's an entirely successful movie but overall i think it's an entertaining movie to watch. And then uh, you also have a movie like The Frighteners, which um, was one of the stepping stones for Peter Jackson's career before he uh, turned into a blockbuster maker with uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. All right, so just looking at it, we had the sequel to The Lawnmower Man in January of that year. Which I completely forgot about that. Uh you had From Dust Till Dawn in January.
1: Which, which is, I was gonna say which is understandable because that's a completely liberal sequel. <laughs>
0: uh, you have uh, Screamers, also in January. And this is in this is this is a time where the months January had a reputation for just being a month of where movies would just be completely dropped because they there was no other place and the studios didn't really have much uh didn't have didn't really have much faith in them. Um Well
1: Yeah, you passed the Oscars there, right? There's no summer season yet for another five months. So January and February were really like a dumping ground for studios. Hey, this is the stuff we really don't care about here. We're gonna throw it out here just so we know January and February.
0: Yeah, and it's actually kind of funny that Dimension and Miramax did that with uh, From Dust Till Dawn, seeing as though you were you had a screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, who was also on screen. It was directed by Robert Rodriguez, who had just done Desperado, and then you had George Clooney, who was hot on uh, ER. So the fact that that is a January release is really kind of shocking. And then while, but then you have in March. They release Hellraiser Bloodline, which is directed by Alan Smithy.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, there was some really bad horror movies out in '96.
0: Yeah, I mean, relatively speaking, we we actually uh, we actually are going to be talking about some decent ones in uh, comparison, with yes. the exception of one that is just putrid and, like you said, putrid and just awful. Um, but so we're going to start off though with a uh, horror movie that came out in 19 in uh, May of that year and it was The Craft and it's basically a it's basically a teen movie, teen high school movie about a uh, an outsider who gets involved with a coven of witches and um we we see as she explores her powers. They explore their powers, and it it all becomes something where eventually she she starts to sort of turn on them. One of them goes really bad, and it, it ends up in exactly where you expect it to. So you saw, if I remember correctly, when we were first talking about this, is this the first year the first time you'd seen the graph?
1: This is absolutely the first time I've seen the craft. Then it's I'd seen craft legacy came out. I think I thing within the year, and I actually liked, I really enjoyed the craft legacy, and then the ending made no sense to me. Back and watched the uh, the first one. at The insistence of our good friend Heather.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, I I seen you know it's funny because at this age like. A couple weeks ago, I was flipping through a uh, gutter, and I found out that there was, how what was it called back, I think it was called. It was either Razorback or, or Boar. I don't know, I can't remember. Anyway, it was this movie made by Russell Cahey, who did the Highlander films, and it's basically about a giant wild boar killing people out in the Australian outback. So there are still these pockets of horror movies that I've never seen, considering I think I've seen everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, careful. That eluded me. I think because at that point, I was in my mid-20s, and I was in college,
2: Mm -hmm. um,
1: going through the whole college experience. I was working full-time during the day, uh, full-time at night, and uh, going to college in the interim there. I think that because it was, it looked like it was something that, like, more with a feminine,
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: for a feminine audience, it didn't click with me that I needed to watch it, you know? Yeah. Well, watch it. Like, it's, it's a pretty good film.
0: It really is actually. Um, it's co-written and directed by uh, Andrew Fleming, who has um, done other movies that I actually have enjoyed over the years. He he did a few years after this, he would do the, the comedy Dick with uh, Kirsten Dunst and uh, Michelle Williams as sort of Deep Throat during the Watergate scandal. And then he also did another movie that I kind of enjoyed yeah. called Hamlet Two with uh Steve Coogan. And um those those two I actually kind of enjoyed. So and naturally this is this was the uh first time in about twenty-four, twenty-five years that I'd seen the craft. And yeah, I mean this is you know, it it's funny because this I was watching it and sort of seeing how uh the the main character played by Robin Tooney who we previously talked about in uh, "End of Days," um, and another one of those lovely of future movies yeah. that uh, Phil was brought to the podcast. Um, <laughs> but it's it's funny because Keep blaming me. <laughs> I hey I you know what I I do agree to these <laughs> I I do agree to these I can't really I. I ultimately have nobody to blame <laughs> device but myself. But um, <laughs> but uh, she and it's like her, you know this. This seems like a very familiar high school movie trope at the time because essentially Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the same way, where it's like you have an outsider who's coming to a new school and she's got powers and. Naturally, she rather than ending up with the cool kids, she ends up with outcasts who, eventually... now in Buffy's case, they later have uh, supernatural abilities. But in this case, um, the outcasts that Robin Tooney comes in contact with are all people, uh, women, young women who uh, study witchcraft.
1: Yes. And, uh, it's just you know, it's a very it's a very quirky film the way it's it's done it's you know it's it's like you said it's got some standard high school movie type elements mm-hmm. but it twists them around with the witchcraft and does some interesting things and it's just it's it, when I watch it I'm like this is really quirky and I like what they do with the quirks you
0: know yeah I like it too and it's it's I I like that it's essentially you know. Uh, they don't necessarily set up that uh Robin Tooney's character is naturally um is, is naturally uh have has Wiccan abilities at the start. She doesn't really start to realize that until later. And I I like that that that's a really good choice because of the fact that it's like if you if you uh because it means that these characters actually these other characters actually have a purpose to sort of move uh, Sarah's character, or Sarah, the Sarah arc along with what they're doing, what what they want to uh, accomplish in their witchcraft.
1: Absolutely. And then, see, the whole thing about this is what really interested me, especially because I spent the almost a decade teaching high school before I got into the restaurant industry. Um, the fact that you give teenagers powers, and of course they're going to run wild and wreck them, wreck things and do exactly what you would expect teenagers to do with supernatural powers.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then So
1: I that element kind of fascinating because mm-hmm. you know, you have to understand these, it's, these kids are, what, like 17? I think they're around... I would say they're around 17, right? Around yeah. that age. Oh, 15, yeah, definitely. 17, 18 in that age. And, you know, my nephew is 17, you know, and he does dumb things all the time, and he doesn't have, you know, witchcraft powers. So mm. I can't imagine what doing if he did, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think the, the thing that's kind of interesting about this, and one of the things I actually kind of like about it is that it does it does deal with uh, repercussions on the spells that they cast. And I yes. think that's that's one of the things where another movie wouldn't necessarily do that. In a way, I feel like, in a way, I was kind of reminded of uh, the Rage Carry 2 in the respect of how it treats high school. And it's like, you know, the the thing is, it's like all of these high school movies kind of, I uh, kind of show high school is pretty fucking terrible to be be in for four years, but at the sure. same time uh but at the same time, I really kind of like that because it does kind of they i feel like they're playing with a certain degree of authenticity and it i it's the type of thing that you can definitely see them kind of lifting from de Palma's carry. And bring it into 90s sensibilities. And, I mean, almost to a certain extent, almost as much as Scream, I think this movie really helped codify this new era of teen horror movies, which obviously you had Scream, obviously you had, I know, what you did last summer, but you would also get a movie like The Faculty a couple of years later that... Plays on typical high school, you know, typical high school movie and high school story themes, but does so in a way that's kind of interesting and kind of tweaks it to an extent.
1: Sure. Yep. And it's it's always interesting when you see high school movies. I'm always interested in how the high school um, high school is portrayed. Because I think that the thing about the craft is that there are some nuances for the characters. I mean, you have the typical stock setup. So for a bulked character. Her family screwed up, right? Yeah. She's messed up because of her family. You have the one girl who's got the terrible skin condition. So, you know, she's obviously affected by that. Mm-hmm. So there are some tropes in there, but they nuanced things pretty nicely with the acting and, and the writing. Like, I've seen so many high school... Like, I'll give you an example. Right? have you ever seen Sorority Row in, like 2009? I...
0: Did I see... I can't remember if I saw it or not. Frozen.
1: I, don't, I don't
0: know they did.
1: So, the movie Sorority Row from 2009 starts off with a camera moving through a sorority party, right? Mm-hmm. Um... And so, like, one of the first things it picks up on is this one girl has, She, I guess she's supposed to be a mean girl, and she's got marker, markers, and she's marking what she thinks the fat pockets are on a girl's stomach. Mm-hmm. And then the camera moves, and a couple of seconds later, you see three girls in, it looks like a, a room with about uh, 500 square feet. They're on a bed, the three of them, and they're in their underwear having a pillow fight. So... I went and looked at the writers on that, and I realized that these guys were two 45-year-old men who were just fulfilling their disgusting fantasies about what sorority houses would be like. Yeah. So you don't get that in something like the crafts, because obviously the the writers there were in touch with, you know, what real college well, you know, a, a semi-real high school experience would be like. <laughs> and that's kind of refreshing and makes the movie that much better because. I feel like I'm dealing with real people instead of forty five year old men's fantasies, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that that is an excellent point. And uh we we haven't really talked about the cast yet. So Robin Tooney plays Sarah, she's the main character who comes into um this high school. Uh you mentioned Fruza Bulk, who is basically who was basically the definition of goth girl on screen throughout the nineties. And then yep. you have uh Rachel True who plays um Rochelle and her her the the issue she's dealing with um is she she's basically dealing with the uh racism and bullying of uh Christine character Taylor or Christine Taylor yes. who is uh Ben Stiller's yes. wife in real life and then you have Nev Campbell yes who is the one with the the uh skin condition and it's funny because this is uh this is the first of two movies that we have Nev Campbell in this is the first of two movies we have Faruza Balk in this episode and we also get Skeet Ulrich here playing probably the least believable football player the the thing the thing with Skeet Ulrich <laughs> yes. is he doesn't he he has he has a face. This isn't a bad thing. This isn't a knock on him. He has a face that makes you makes me less believe the idea that he was he he would ever be a jock. He always strikes me as kind of a weirdo in his movie and T V shows.
1: That's not a bad thing. No, I, I think that was I think that was why he fit his role so well in the stream, because yeah. he's physically designed to look like that character would be. Yeah. You're right. He totally is unbelievable at the jack. I don't buy it at all.
0: So <laughs> Yeah. And then we also get um Breck Meyer as well as one of his friends and Breckenmeyer, another staple of uh, nineteen nineties cinema. Um, and uh this this is really a this is a really strong ensemble actually. Because even, even though I don't necessarily believe for a second that Skid Ulrich's character would be a jock, I still think he does a good job in this movie selling just how cruel that this character is. But I also do kind of believe that when the love sto- love spell that Sarah casts takes effect, I do kind of believe that 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 he is affected by it too. I mean, that just says a lot about Skeet Ulrich as a performer. Yes,
1: absolutely. I agree. Did you know that Rachel True was not originally written as a black girl? I did not, no. So after I watched The Craft, I watched some YouTube stuff on it, and I found an interview with her saying that the character was originally written as another white girl, and the whole racism thing wasn't in there. Mm -hmm. And then they hired her and she fought to have something like that put in to make her character have some deeper, some deeper stuff going on. Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Christine Taylor. Again, if you want to talk about performances, Christine Taylor is not a great actress, but I mean, she's she's better in comedies, I think. Yeah. She plays the typical girl in this, you know, which makes sense. But the comeback on her is pretty nasty.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, it is. And one that's one of the things that I like about this is that the the repercussions are more believable, where it you know, there are consequences to their actions. And I I think that's as as much as we want to root for these girls, we also, you know, we also kind of understand why they end up uh having their powers sort of backfire on them. Um and uh, yes. I, I think it adds a lot of interesting drama to the uh, film, especially as the, the film starts to take a darker turn and uh, Frusia Balk's character sort of becomes the one that is uh, inevitably going to be the uh, villain of the film.
1: Yeah, it's funny because, you know, it's one of those real rare ones where you have a character turn from protagonist to ultimately antagonist, you normally don't have that. I mean, again, it's a little more nuanced, the writing in there, and I like that. You know, you have a character who, you know, the art goes, the character's art goes totally off the rails because, and again, it goes with the old, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely that type thing, because she gets her hands on this and she finds someone who's got real powers and can show her how to use them, and all of a sudden she goes nuts.
0: yeah. No, absolutely. And uh I will you know, it's like we we've sort of touched on it. It's like you you kind of touched on it. It's like the Fleming does a really good job of uh capturing what high school is really like. And that is that's something that you can't necessarily say about every uh high school bound project in the nineties. I mean, especially the idea of cause I mean this is the the typical high school the typical high school thing of a uh, 90s thing where people much older you know people a few years older than high schoolers are playing high schoolers but you kind of believe it in this case they they do a really good job of casting well enough within that age range to where we we believe that these characters are actually high schoolers
1: well, look, Nev Campbell started off on she she her first big break was on Party of five, yeah, and she was in high school at that point in that show, right mm-hmm. so she was she was fit to play those type characters in the you know in the nineties, and I think part of the reason that you know like her character specifically like they have that scene where she's in the doctor's office and the doctor is looking over her her skin on her I think it's on her back, right yeah. And, yeah. you know, she's examining her back, and they're like, hey, we can do this for the treatment and all that, but it's going to be painful, but maybe we can get rid of it, maybe we can't. And Neve Campbell is, like, perfectly suited as an actress to play the way she plays that character. Because mm-hmm. that, that character feels physically inferior, because she's got the skin condition, and at least into her personality, you know? Yeah. So, I think that the casting, like, her eyes above. <laughs> Fries a bulk. I've seen in plenty of interviews, and she comes off as a strange cat. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that there's a little bit of that in her that she's perfectly fit for that. Like I think they did a really good job in casting the, like if you if you spun the characters around and cast them differently, um, with those same set of actresses, I think you wouldn't have a movie that was nearly as effective.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that, and um, you know it it's it it goes to you know, and we'll we'll talk more about Nev Campbell in, uh, when we talk about Scream, but the yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's like her, and that's that's one of the things that's good too, because of the fact that not everything that these that the characters are sort of casting spells for are inherently selfish. You know, I mean, Sarah's kind of is because of the fact that you know the Skeeter character rejects Jackson rejects her so it's like oh we'll do a love spell and get him to you know get him to fall in love with me but you know bruja bulk is uh doing what she does okay. because she wants to get out of the life that she's living for her and her mother and uh michelle yes. is getting back at somebody who i will say is very upfront about her racism and uh, that's that's something that you don't necessarily uh, get in a lot of high school movies is somebody who's just naturally upfront about it. It's and um, but yeah. And then Nev Campbell, she she wants her, she she wants her uh, scars to go away. And but to see it, it's the typical. But it's also this is all typical things where it's like you see how you see how this power is beneficial to them and they become more confident as they become more powerful. And the fact that it's powerful together is great. I think the levitation scene where they try that is really strong and it's such a simple scene.
1: Yep. I think part of the reason that the movie has an appeal though is that like... Who if anybody had that kind of skin condition on their back, who wouldn't want to be able to wish that away? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Whoever wants to be victimized by anybody for, for your color or your size or your voice or whatever, yeah? You know? Who who hasn't had a crush that, you know, goes unrequited because that person turns out not to be for you or you're not for them, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that those are all pretty Simple things, and I think that what makes the the movie relatable is that you know they're not really they start off not asking for outlandish stuff at all, like they ask for stuff that's very relatable to the audience,
0: you mm-hmm. know? yeah, yeah, and they that that gives that gives the film an honesty that some of these uh teen horror movies just did not have in the uh 90s. I mean, you know, I, I know I know what you did last summer has a you know has as somewhat of a cult following. I know there was just a TV series based on it um, on Amazon, but it's like, it just, it felt such, it felt like such a basic slasher and everybody kind of felt like archetypes. And I think the the thing that's really nice about movies like The Craft and movies like Scream is that not only they, they bring us the archetypes, but they also do so in... A way that's kind of authentic to how how life was at the time. Yes,
1: and I think that you know, I think that if look at look at the Rage Carry 2, which we don't want to look at that for that long because we've already done that. <laughs> but look, did you ever watch a second of that movie where you thought any of those characters were real people? Because I didn't.
0: No, not really. I mean, it it goes off. I I think there are. A, I think the movie, I still think that movie has moments, but they're so fleeting that it basically undercuts everything that it's trying to do. Um, And, you know, and a big part of, I think, the success of a movie like this, I mean, even one of the things I said, especially during the climax, is I don't think some of the effects hold up particularly well. Uh, It's it's one of the it you know it's one of the curses of CGI in the nineteen nineties, where some of it just doesn't connect in the long term. Some of it doesn't really hold up, but the emotions of that scene
1: do. Yes, absolutely. Because I think the thing is that in the mid nineties, if you don't have Steven Spielberg's budget for Jurassic Park, you're going to be dealing with some CGI in a movie like some dodgy CGI in a movie like The Craft. Yeah, but you know what? The story's good enough where I can forgive that. You know? oh, and yeah, and that's important that I can look at that and say, okay, not the greatest special effects, but the story's carrying it enough where I can say, all right, I, I'm not, I'm not mad at that. You know?
2: Yeah, and
0: especially because by that point, especially, especially in the climax between uh, Bruce Bulk and uh, Robin Tooney in the the movie, you're, you're, you care so much about the characters, you care about their journey. That's what's most important. And um it's it's just really it's this is just such this is a really strong movie. I completely understand its cult, you know, following and it's funny because a few, you know, and it's funny because there's another nineties movie about witches that I really am sort of baffled by its cult following that it's gotten, and that's Hocus Pocus. It it's just such a cheap... that one's such A cheesy one and yes the 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 actresses who played the sanderson sisters and that are terrific but at the same time i i can't that movie is not nearly as engaging to me as something like this because
1: i'm sorry which one was that
0: hocus pocus which grand is very disney oh okay yeah and i you know i i think uh you know, and I'm I'm kind of baffled by the nostalgia of that one, but with something like the craft, I can look at it and go, okay, I get it because it's it's tapping really well into that vein of isolated and alienated youth that you would get in the '90s, and you got throughout the '90s and high school movies and movies about 20-somethings and uh, Generation X in general and. It's it really does capture some authenticity to that, even with the supernatural aspects.
1: You know, if you want to look at a really good underrated witch movie with with female witches, check out um, the Witches of Eastwick with Jack Nicholson. Oh yeah, that is that, a hell of a film.
0: <laughs> that that is a fantastic movie. Yes, that I, I just. I think it was it was either early last year or early this year I watched it for the first time and it is fantastic. Yeah. I, I I love that one. And uh it's it's but I mean that's also George Miller, and George Miller's just like one of the greats. He he's one of the unerrowed greats as far as filmmakers. Um I I will say one of the other things that I want to say about the craft before we move on is you can really kind of tell that this is a nineties because of the use of the uh, song soundtrack. And Oh my uh, God. <laughs> yes. And I, you know, I, I think it, the, you know, I'm not saying the sound song tra- song soundtrack is one of the best of the year, but I do think it's well used in this particular movie. There, there are some movies where the songs are not really that effective in the usage and uh having somebody like Graham Revel on this, and uh he had a couple of other uh scores this year in uh from Dutle Dawn and the Grocery of Angels, but it was it was nice to hear him in this and uh you know you if you're familiar with his stuff um there are some familiar musical choices there there are some familiar motifs in there th- from his scores but yeah i I will say this this is one of those ones where you really realize how much the 90s were kind of the heyday of song soundtracks.
1: Absolutely. Especially in horror movies when you could plug in you know, Stained and those type bands and um, stuff that was really downbeat and depressing. <laughs> which I guess people thought went with the uh, mold of horror at the time. So
0: Yeah. Um, so I I don't really have a whole lot more to say about the craft. I, I think, you know, it's like and at this point, I mean, the craft doesn't necessarily need a recommendation because it does have that cult following. But I, I will say I do think this movie holds up probably better to a certain, maybe not better than it should, but it, it, it really reminds you what a uh, solid teen, teen movie could be in the 90s.
1: I would, I would say to cap things off on my end that it's still not the movie for me. I don't think I'm the target audience for it. I don't think I was the target audience when it came out at 49. I'm certainly not the target audience. (laughs) But if you want a a well-crafted... If you want a well-crafted film with some pretty solid performances from actresses, and again, actresses don't nearly get enough highlights in movies, um, even today in mainstream stuff, that it is well worth a look.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And um, like... Like like with you, um, yeah, this is not a movie that was it wasn't made for me in mind, and it's not one that I'm necessarily going to uh, go back and watch uh, over and over in in my life. But it, it's one that I'm glad that I rewatched it for this one because of the fact that, uh, and I I mean we we should say that Heather was one of the main reasons we this was part of the lineup. Um, and uh yeah it's it's a it's a good one. It's one that really holds up better than I kind of expected
1: yep all right what's next?
0: <clears throat> so coming up next is the the movie that made me uh swear off uh, Phil as part of the podcast for a while um again, to be <laughs> fair i uh i uh i agreed to this, and it is uh the island of dr Moreau and before we, before we get to this in, 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 in full, I just want to say something. John Frankenheimer is one of the great directors of all time. The Manchurian Candidate is one of the 20 best films I've ever seen. Ronin is one of the great spy movies of of the 20th and 21st century, I think. And it's funny because I, I ended up seeing two... I wouldn't have necessarily picked up on it at the time, but I ended up seeing two Frankenheimer movies in 1996. There was this one, and then there was his 1966 movie, Seconds, which I saw at the University Theater. And that, that's a movie that I didn't really know I was watching at the time. And then I rewatched it last year for the first time probably since then, and it really connected with me on a level that I did not expect, even though I'd always really liked it. So I want to say that right off the bat before I say, and it's not inherently his fault, but this movie is fucking atrocious.
1: All right, so I, I I actually have a connection between this and our last part. Now, last time we talked about the Omen trilogy. And remember, we discussed how we thought Damien Omen 2 was the weak link of those three movies, right? Yes. So, so what happened was, um, in 1977 or 8, I believe, uh, Don Taylor, who directed The Omen 2, took over for the director they fired, Friends mm-hmm. of William Holden, the version of The Island of Dr. Moreau, right? Yeah. And it used to be on TV on Friday night on ABC at like one in the morning, like every Friday. And I used to watch this thing obsessively. And I watched it as an adult when I first got a DVD player, like it had to be 20 years after that, like 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, got some decent stuff going on. It's, you know, the the, the animal costumes. And you can see they put a lot of craft into them. But they look more cuddly than scary, you know? Yeah. Um, but growing up, you know, as, as a in my formative years of being a horror fan, that was one of those films that I loved. And it was a perfect, like, midnight movie, you know? It was yeah. a B-movie schlock. tied to, um, you know, a story by H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest science fiction writers of the 19th century. Yep. Unfortunate. so... I remember when this was coming out, and I got excited because I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to make a new Island of Dr. Moreau. It's going to be fascinating, special effects. I can't wait to see this. And then I went to the theater opening night to see this. And it was the worst hour and 45 minutes I've ever spent in a movie theater. (laughs) I'm shocked I didn't walk out, especially because I had a friend who ran the theater at the time. He was the GM, so he let me in for free. Yeah. If 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 I hadn't actually... I didn't pay for it, and I still should have demanded my money back. That's how bad <laughs> this film is.
0: <laughs> yeah, when a film like, th-
1: this when a film is does a, that, it's,
0: like- it's, yeah, when a film does that, you're you're not in good hands. Um, I, the the thing that, yeah, and we should say that the original director of this was Richard Stanley, who came out with a decent movie a couple, last year called Com- Color Out of Space, based on a Lovecraft story, with Nicolas yes. Cage, and, uh, it's a good movie. It it really, that's a solid movie. Um, you know, I was reading about this one because I had forgotten a lot of the history behind this movie. I knew it was a nightmare of a shoot. I couldn't necessarily remember why. And uh, I guess there's a documentary called Lost Soul that recounts um, this movie. And you, you hear, and just looking at Wikipedia, you kind of see a lot of the, you hear about a lot of the things that went on, how basically nobody had any respect for Frankenheimer after he came on. And, you know, it. Kilmer was a mess going through divorce and going through a bunch of other stuff at the time. Marlon Brando was how Marlon Brando was at this point in his career. And then uh, the main actor who plays uh, the David Thewis character, left the project and David Thewis came in at the last minute. And, um, you know, it's funny because of the fact that it's like, I, there are a lot of things that uh, I, I kind of forgot about this movie and one of those, but I will say one of the things that I did forget that kind of, um, really bothers me so much is why this need to be set in the present day.
1: It doesn't. That's part of the problem right there. But, you know, this movie at one point was supposed to to be made on the very cheap and it was supposed to star Bruce Willis at one point and every time they they added new people a budget went up. Supposed to star Bruce Willis, supposed to star Rob Morrow supposed to star Rob Morrow in the Val Kilmer role until Val Kilmer got there and decided he wanted the bigger role so he screwed over Rob Morrow who sat around waiting months on some foreign island waiting for this thing to go, and then he said, you know, I have my Northern Exposure money. I'm going home. I'm not hanging around here anymore. Yeah. The stories that come out of this thing, all of them are much more fascinating than anything, any of the mess that ends up on screen. Yeah. But let's attempt to break this down. <laughs> <laughs> so David Doolis, much like in Story, which I've read many times, and much like in the 78 movie, Ends up, you know, he's he's shipwrecked and he ends up on an island. At which point, he finds this eccentric Doctor Moreau, who doesn't show up for all, I think it's like an hour into the movie. One right? Brandon is yeah. not actually in at that. Long. Yeah, it's about an hour before he shows up, but it's all build up to that. Um, and then you have Val Kilmer, who is, you know. <sighs> I don't even know how to describe his performance in this movie. Brian, maybe you can attempt to do that because I don't think I can.
0: Let, let's put it this way. The highlight of Val Kilmer's performance in this movie is when he's spoofing Doc Marlon Brando's Dr. Moreau. That, that is the level of performance you get from Val Kilmer. Absolutely. Here. Um, and uh, when, when he spoofs uh, Brando's Dr. Moreau, it's basically the best part of the entire movie. Um... I, the fact that the, I don't know, why do you bring in a master at makeup and a master at visual effects like Stan Winston to create the makeup effects for this movie? When you reminded
1: me when you reminded me when you reminded me that this was Stan Winston, I, I almost I almost wanted to call you a liar. I can't believe this is Stan Winston.: <laughs> No, like, these no. makeup effects are absolutely horrendous. Well I don't look good at all. Like this
2: You can see
0: what he was going for. You can see what he was going for, but at the same time, because everything in this movie looks so cheap, it clearly does look like a movie that they didn't they wanted to spend as little money as possible on. And it extends to the makeup because I think there are some interesting designs here but there's not enough money to really flesh them out. And one of the things I told you is that it reminded me, as the movie was going on, the makeup in this movie, there are two movies This mo- this the makeup in this movie remind me of. One, it reminded me of the later uh, entries in the original Planet of the Apes series where they were cutting so far to the budget that John Chambers did not have enough budget to go all out so you're basically just looking at people in masks from a distance and then it also kind of reminds me of Clive yep. Barker's Nightbreed. Now, I think Nightbreed oh god, yes, yeah. is a much more interesting movie from a visual stand. There are other issues with that movie, but ultimately I think from a creature standpoint Nightbreed is more interesting, um, and it's funny because I do think that the ending of this I wrote that remind me of a more fever pitched Nightbreed in in that. But one of the things that also I also thought I could see
1: that. Definitely.
0: But one of the other things I could think of is like, okay, fine, you know, Stan Winston, he is a great, he is a legend. Can you imagine what this movie would have been like with, like, Tom Savini doing the makeup effects and the creature effects? Yeah. And I think because he was probably more... I think because of the fact that he's more accustomed to working on a budget with Romero, with other filmmakers, I think he really could have done maybe a better job under the circumstances than Winston did, which is mind-boggling to say.
1: I'm going to say that the, the Queen Alien suit in Aliens probably cost more than the entire budget Stan Winston had to do all these creature effects on this movie. Yeah. I'm going to take a stab at that. I'm also going to say that you know this movie had a bloated budget, most of which went to Brando and to Kelmer. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't, like... See, what's the thing with an effects movie. Like, this movie is an effects movie. Yeah. I would take lesser stars. Like, Rob Morrow was basically most known. I think Quiz Show came out, like, the year before this.
2: Yeah, a couple A years year or
1: two before this. Yeah. But basically, Rob Morrow was... And Rob Morrow would have been perfectly serviceable in this movie. What What the fuck do I need... What the fuck do I? I'm pardon my language. What the fuck do I need? Marlon Brando being introduced as if he just walked out of a fucking kiss concert. Yeah, right. Yeah, slumming well, like, his way because you can tell he's just like I'm gonna. I don't give a shit about this movie at all. I'm gonna slum through this
0: thing. <laughs> well, and this was this was the point in his career where he really just he had no problem being the most difficult person imaginable to filmmakers. He yeah. just had no. He, he had no care in the world about being an actor and being a star. I mean, you know, and five years later, like, he was working on, you know, he was working on the score, and he wouldn't even be in the... He would have... De Niro was gonna have to direct him because he wouldn't take any direction from Frank Oz. And it's... it Brando is... Uh, it's so frustrating because, I mean... I can see Brando, Brando would be an interesting choice. And I have to say, I like the, I mean, it might be something from the original novel, I'm not quite sure. The idea that Moreau is a vegetarian, and he he doesn't eat meat here, and he doesn't like to eat meat. I, I like that because, as a character point choice, because of the fact that, sort of plays into the twisted worldview of the character in this particular case, but also feels like, oh, it's a decision that Marlon Brando made because he's Marlon Brando. He feels like he can do whatever he wants.
1: Marlon Brando, it, I mean, I, I if you if you love his style of acting, and I've always loved Brando, my mom was like the world's biggest Brando fan when I was a kid, to the point where she had a picture of Kurtz, Colonel Kurtz cut out a Time magazine that she had taped inside one of the kitchen cabinets. <laughs> so mom loved Brando and I have a fondness for his acting. But he's always been, you know, certifiably insane. Yeah. Like and the whole thing is, I think at this point his his daughter had just been murdered, I think, around this time. I yeah. think that went yeah. into it.
0: That that came into it with Yeah, that was one of the things that was yet another thing that plagued this because of the fact that, and he went off to his own private island for a while and yep. nobody knew when he was coming back.
1: So you have, you have an uncertain, you have a certifiably insane, grief stricken Marlon Brando who doesn't want to come out on set, and you have Val Kilmer who is another, I mean, Val Kilmer is a great actor, let's be honest. I mean, he is, back in the day, I mean, you can laugh at the stuff in Top Gun, but he's really making Iceman a character in that movie, you know? Yeah. And, you know, he's a really top-flight actor, and then he's stricken because his fucking wife is leaving him, and he he wants, you know, I feel really bad for Rob Moreau. I really do, because Rob Moreau was just there to do a job, and he got hired and expected to have, you know, a semi lead role. Mm-hmm. And then that got downsized because Kilmer said, "Screw you." Frankenheimer said that he would never work with Kilmer again after this movie. Yeah, <laughs> he swore up and down he wanted to kill Kilmer. And then Kilmer, you know, there were points where they'd go to Brando's set and they'd say, "Okay, Marlon, it's time for you to come out and film your scenes," and he like, "I'm not coming out till Kilmer comes out." <laughs> so then they'd send the PA, PAs over, over to Kilmer's tent and say, "Hey." And Kilmer, it's time to come out, and Kilmer would say, "I'm not coming out of my trail until Brando comes out." I mean, it just evolved into a total mess. Now, part of that, I, I think the overlying reason that this is such a mess is because of Richard Stanley, because i watched that documentary, like until that 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 Colorado out of space movie last year, he hadn't made a movie since this. Yeah, I think he made a couple smaller TV things, but he never went back to make a movie. But now he like hangs out with shaman and he thinks he's a witch and all this stuff and he's got a skull that he talks to and that guy is like so his vision of this thing because they show in that documentary some of his uh, storyboards you know, actually they weren't even storyboards they were just full blown pictures that he'd written up or uh, drawn up as ideas <coughs> paintings and I'm like some of the stuff like there's a scene where and I think part of it is in this thing but not really the way really. it was supposed to like <laughs> they have a scene that he drew where it's these the, some of the, the mammals, I guess is the best thing to call them are dressed in doctor's garbs like surgery garbs yeah. delivering a baby from a pregnant animal. and it's mm-hmm. just, I know it's, if it's in there it's not in there for very long, mm-hmm. but that was like a, a big central scene the way he had written it yeah. so his vision was fucking crazy to begin with on this thing. Mm -hmm. And then he got there, and he was way in over his head, because I think he'd only made, like, one movie before that, um, one or two movies before that, so he got there. He was way in over his head. He couldn't handle Brando. He couldn't handle Kilmer. You know, they had tropical storms on the set. Everything that could possibly go wrong with this filming did. Yeah. And they fired him. They said, but, but unfortunately, by that point, Frankenheimer gets there, and this, Frankenheimer is stuck with this guy's vision, which I would think must be really hard to do when you have a, a different vision from what you would have brought to the film originally as a director walking in. You know? Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, and and the thing is, the way to... And, and so the it, thing, go ahead.
2: No, go ahead.
1: I'm listening
0: the the so and the way to deal with all of that turmoil, especially once you just commit to making the director change is you give the director even though you're hemorrhaging money at this point and you're running the risk of uh and you're running the risk of possibly losing actors you don't immediately just start again you basically give the director who's coming in a chance to see what you've already got and then decide what type of movie he's going to make. And I think, in, you know, sure. a lot of the cheap aspects of this movie could have been forgiven if you felt like Frankenheimer was able to nail down the tone of what this movie should be. Should it be a dark comedy, which sometimes it sometimes feels like it is? is it going to be a more chilling horror movie? Is it going to be something where you're dealing with intellectual sci-fi ideas? Is it something that's a combination of the three? And because of the fact that you don't really feel like there's a commitment to one or the other of any of those ideas, it's a mess.
1: And here's, here's part of the problem with that too. So, I vividly remember the scene where David Thule tries to get back on his boat and he thinks he's, maybe I can escape, right? Yeah. So, he gets out there and he's ready to fucking try to escape. And then he sees these little three, like six inch tall mice men dancing around on the boat. That's not supposed to be dark comedy. Yeah. That plays like comedy, that scene is so bad. Yeah. You know, the, the thing with. The thing with Kilmer doing the the Brando, which apparently really pissed Brando off, not surprisingly. <laughs> but the, the thing with him mocking Brando's voice when he's on the intercom talking to the island—I mean, what are you going for? You? What's what's the end game? Yeah. You know, what, what's what do you want? Like, what are people supposed to get out of this? What's the vision here? Because it doesn't seem like there's any vision at all. It's just like let's slap all this together and hope it works. Yeah.
0: And the thing is, the movie that I was thinking about when I was watching this yesterday morning was Solo, which started off with one set of filmmakers. That wasn't working, so they were let go. Then Ron Howard was brought in to finish it. and But you also had that time of... That, a, time, a, a brief moment of time where Ron Howard was able to sort of Figure out what he was going to do with the film and to make it feel like a cohesive thing. And you look at the you look at the final product, it looks seamless. It looks now that's not to say it's a great movie, but it is a movie, it it's a movie that feels complete. This does not feel complete. And you know, you look at the Manchurian Candidate, you look at seconds. You can tell that Frankenheimer is capable of going with numerous different types of tones, numerous different types of genre to make an interesting movie that will both terrify you and also sometimes make you laugh with how ridiculous it can be. And he just, it, it feels like, it feels like, New Line put him under so much pressure to get this underway. The fact that one of the great filmmakers, and I do consider Frankenheimer a great filmmaker, could not rein this in and turn it into something that feels like the that feels very, um, of a piece with what he made over over his career, is really disappointing.
1: I'm really surprised. And again, this is New Line Cinema and Bob Shea. So Bob Shea started by, you know, he was... uh, He started off New Line as a very small thing, and then they broke big when Freddy came along, and then they got co-opted with Warner Brothers, and they ended up eventually making Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. But I think if Bob Shay didn't have Bob Shea's sensibilities and the need to make money back, they would have shelved this thing and would never have seen Light of Day. No one yeah. would ever have seen this movie.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. But I figure that they, have, they had so much money invested and Bob Shay's going back to his days of, hey, listen, we need to make whatever penny we can make back. And that's why it got released. Mm-hmm. And that's why they got my whatever it was. However many dollars it was for the price of them. No, oh, no, I didn't because I got it for free. Never mind. Say yeah,
0: you got. They got my money. They they got my money, and uh, <laughs> the result is one of the. It, it was easily one of the weirdest movies that like my mother and I have ever seen together in a theater. Like we we've had some we we've occasionally seen that some weird movies, but yeah, this is one that is, and we should say Frusa Bulk is in this one as well. Uh, she plays. Dr. Rose's daughter who seems normal, but then she's also part of his genetic experiments and she's going to turn into one of the uh, hybrids that everybody else is. And there's one other actor that I, I want to point out here who is under makeup. Actually there are two because I completely, so uh, the sayer of the law in this movie is Ron Perlman who is one of the great...
1: Which uh, you never know. No, yeah. you wouldn't
0: have known it, and it didn't occur to me until I no. heard him at the very end that that was Ron Perlman. But he's <laughs> one of the great moot character actors in terms of playing weird characters. Whether it's Hellboy, whether it's something for uh, for, like, Save Lost Children, or Alien Resurrection, yeah. and... Uh, or Guillermo del Toro. I mean, it's it's there's so many. He, he's capable of so much more than this. And then uh, Timur Morrison is another one of the character people actors who's really in and under makeup. And he, this was like a year to remove from a terrific performance he gave in a New Zealand movie called Once Were Warriors, which is a fantastic film. No, I've never heard of that one. It, it's a terrific I'll have to check film. Out. I've it's, never heard of that. One. Yeah, it's so the director. Um, he also the director went on to do Die Another Day, the uh, last Pierce Brosnan uh, Bond movie, film, yeah. and he he's done a couple yeah. of other movies. But uh, Once we Warriors is by far his best movie, and Tamur Morrison is just a force of nature in it. And uh, he would go on to play Django Fett in the. In uh the Star Wars prequels, and now he's playing Boba Fett in the Mandalorian and has his own Boba Fett series coming out this year. And uh it's it's one of those things where it's like you you have these actors under this makeup, and it it's not the same thing as like having you know, they they just don't resonate, and they should because you have great actors under no, this they makeup. don't resonate at all, and uh yeah, I mean, it, it it's like the last note I had for this movie was what the fuck am I watching?
1: And that's exactly what I felt back yeah. in 1996 when I was in the movie theater. I yeah. do want to add one more thing before we move on to the next uh, film. Yeah. But it's interesting that you mentioned of Balk. And again, we didn't spend I mean, I don't think she's gotten nearly the role in here that she had in The Craft. No. And, no. again i have to give her credit because in that documentary she actually says that you know once stanley quit once stanley got fired she wanted to quit
2: mm-hmm. and her
1: agent basically told her listen if you quit this movie you're never going to work again yeah he's like i don't care how much you appreciate richard stanley you need to finish this film because you're contractually obligated and they'll make sure you never work again because this is a big film yeah um But the interesting thing about that is that her character, there's an analog in the 78 version played by the beautiful Barbara Carrera. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then back in the 30s, in the original version of this, The Island of Lost Souls, there is, uh, that's the first one that introduces the female cat hybrid type character. But in the novel, there are no women at all. Yeah. So... Um, I think that they it in the '30s for some Hayes Code sexual type stuff, and I think that that's interesting that that just genetically somehow carried carried over to the other two movies. Yeah. That they stuck with having a woman there. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really
1: don't other have much on that though. This movie is. No, go ahead. Well, I can say you said this movie is not complete. And I can guarantee you that it's complete garbage, and nobody should ever see this flick unless it's forced upon them in a jail somewhere in the, the Himalayas.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that that's appropriate. This is this is truly one of the worst movies I've ever seen, um, and uh, it was it was one that you know even even then I I knew this was a terrible movie. Um, I unlike from Dustful Dawn, which I talked about earlier. I knew why this was a terrible movie. And uh, this this rewatch just, just confirmed so many of the issues that I had with this. Um, that being said, uh, we're going to move on to another movie starring Mr. Kilmer and with makeup effects by Stan Winston. It is the, uh, it and it's more of an adventure movie, but it also has some horror in it. It has a little bit of a slasher structure to it, so that's why we're kind of including it. It is uh, Stephen Hopkins' The Ghosts in the Darkness, and it is uh, based on a true... or It's inspired by a true story about um, two male lions who basically terrorized a uh, group in uh, building a bridge in Kenya at the turn of the century and uh kilmer's character in this one is a bridge builder and he's also hunted and uh he is once once things take over with the lions uh he basically the the bridge has to be put on hold and they have to capture and kill the lions and uh michael douglas comes into the the film as remington and uh this is this is I I actually remembered this being an enjoyable kind of B movie adventure sort of horror movie and I I will admit I I do feel like that memory was uh it it was kind of um reinforced with this one this rewatch.
1: So, I want to talk about B movies for a second before we move on and talk about this one specifically. I think that B-movies are made for a specific purpose. They don't have the budget. They don't have the clout normally, the star power. But there are some really great, great B-movies out there. You know? And I think that once you hit on that, like, I think this should be an Academy Award for B-movies, basically. Because um, I watched Escape from New York recently a couple months ago, and I'm like, wow, this is a great, great, like, it's a B-movie. Yeah. Oh, Kurt Russell's committed to playing Snake Plissken. You have a couple other actors there, but it is a great, great B movie. This is another example. Is Ghost in the Darkness a great movie? Well, maybe not. Is it a great B movie? Absolutely. Yeah. Beginning to end, and <laughs> it is a great B movie, and I think those movies serve a purpose. I I, really I agree. Think they
0: do. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I've definitely, and I I've definitely come to appreciate that about. Um, certain movies this year, like one of the movies, I, I rewatched this movie for a uh, repertory review of, uh, and it was Barbie Schroeder's uh, remake of Kiss of Death, the classic film noir. And this was the one that David Caruso, <laughs> Nicolas Cage, Samuel L. Jackson, Stanley Tucci, a bunch of other terrific actors. And one of the things that, and I've never considered that a great movie. I've never considered a great movie. But it always stuck with me as something that I enjoyed, and something that was kind of interesting as the type of movie that was, which is sort of and I I I sort of likened it in my review to Con Air, which is basically let's throw everything at the kit and the kitchen sink at this material, and let's just make something that's entertaining. And I think that Kiss of Death does that very well, even though to a certain extent, I think Caruso is kind of devoid of more of charisma compared to some of his co-stars in that movie. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think Nicholas, I think Conair is a terrific example of like a B-movie, throw everything at Jerry Bruckheimer production. This, we, we got to talk about the pedigree in this movie. So you have Val Kilmer as the lead. You have Michael Douglas as the co-lead as Remington. And he was also one of the producers. So he helped bring this to the screen. You have Stan Winston doing makeup effects. You have Jerry Goldsmith running the score. Oscar Oscar winner Jerry Goldsmith doing the score. Oscar winner Vilmos Zygmunt... Shooting this film, oh, and two-time Academy Award winner William Goldman writing the screenplay. Yep, that is quite a pedigree. And then you have supporting actors, and Tom Wilkinson, who's gone on to a terrific career in supporting roles, was eventually one Oscar for Michael Clayton. And then you have, and I completely forgot this was her. You have Emily Mortimer as uh, Val Kilmer's wife. In this movie, yep. and when I saw yes, her, I'm is. like, "Oh my god, I forgot that was her." Um, this this is a very simple structure. This is the type of movie I think Stephen Hopkins, who's is not a great director, but I think he's great at this type of movie. He did pre- he did the sequel to the pre- the first sequel to Predator, which is not even nearly on the same level as the original, but it's still in that movie. And then he did. Blown away a couple of years before this with Jeff Ridges and Tommy Lee Jones, which I've always really liked. Yes. This he he is a solid craftsman and he he really understands the nature of what this story should be. And I, I think that's one of the things that I've always liked
1: about it. Well, you know what it is? It moves well. Yeah. It it really does. It moves well. It's engaging and it's engaging throughout. And again, I don't think Michael Douglas shows up for a while because at the beginning it's all about Val Kilmer. You know, it starts over with this really promising premise. He's gonna go to Kenya and build his bridge and he's gonna become this world famous build bridge builder and all that, you know? Yeah. And then he gets there and he's got this unfortunate problem that these two lions are eating everybody. Mm-hmm. So nobody wants to. It's kind of cool because it delves into the idea that the community thinks that the lions are eating them out of some superstitious belief that the lions don't want the bridge built, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's not just that they fear for their lives, but they fear for their lives because they fear that these lions are specifically against this particular project. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you go through Val Kilmer trying to take out the, the lions and you know, and then you get to eventually the point where Hey, let's bring in the big American Game Hunter. And I think that part of the interesting part of what makes this film enjoyable for me <laughs> is that once once Michael Douglas gets there, his character and his acting style are very different from Kilmer's acting style and Kilmer's character. Yeah. But I think that they gel really well together; that they work <laughs> off each other rather well.
0: No, I would definitely agree with that. And uh, you know, the the comparison I made in my. Uh, notes when it comes to uh, Remington. He remind me of uh, Colton, the character Douglas played in Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, but more Romancing the Stone. Um, he, he's got that swagger to him, and it's interesting to read some of the actors that they considered for Remington because they, ri- they originally offered it to Sean Connery and Anthony Hopkins, both of them declined, and I, I kind of understand it. And like you know, but and then they were originally going to ask Gerard Depardieu, who would have been a really weird choice, before Douglas Open decided. Up. Before Douglas decided to play the role himself, and you know, admittedly Stephen Hopkins said that he was kind of unhappy about that, and I kind and especially I kind of understand where he's coming from because it's like at the time, uh, Douglas was. The producer of the film but not in the movie so you know to a certain extent you can look at that as sort of Douglas sort of reasserting, asserting himself even more into the production
2: than he already was
1: sure but you know again you have to remember that Michael Douglas produced um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yes and if I have Michael Douglas as my producer, I think I'm going to do pretty much anything he wants. Oh yeah. And then there's a funny story about that too, because Kirk Douglas thought when Michael Douglas bought the rights for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that he was going to make him the star of it, and he chose Jack Nicholson instead. So <laughs> I thought that was an interesting little story about that movie. But I digress. Yeah. It um, always yeah, yeah. It always kind you of you know again, no matter what the details were and who like. You got this you got to see Sean Connery play this type of character in the very last film Sean Connery ever did, which is The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. Now I like that on a, on a on a pure cheese level, I actually enjoy that movie. But that was what you were probably gonna get if you had him playing this role, I would think, something along those lines. And I don't think it would have been near the movie if you had him in there.
0: No, I I think having I think it having somebody who's a bit closer to, uh, Patterson's age, the the Kilmer character, I I think that helps because if because of the fact that you do yes. kind of are able to build more chemistry and more of a bond and a friendship between these two characters, then you would have if you had, had somebody like an Anthony Hopkins or like a Sean Connery in the, the role, because then the expectation is completely different. And I I think that's I, I, I think that is a good choice. I think that was ended up like you said, it ended up being a good choice. Uh this, this was another difficult shoot for Val Kilmer. Uh he was coming off of Dr. Moreau and uh this was this was a tough shoot because of the fact that uh you you had I, I guess, according to Hopkins, we had snake bites, scorpion bites, tick bite, fever, people getting hit by lightning, floods, torrential rains, lightning storms, hippos chasing people through the water, cars getting swept into the water, and several... Wow, I didn't realize several deaths of uh, crew, crew members, including two drownings. Holy shit. Um, so this was wow. another one that was just a nightmare, but, you know, two... To Kilmer's credit he he had real passion for this film and you you really do get that in his performance and uh you know this is this is I I feel like this is a this is so much better of a representation of what Val Kilmer could give you in a movie than Island of Dr Moreau I think if Island of Dr Moreau had actually selled in on a tone I think you have gotten a really good performance out of kilmer but because of the fact that that one went so sideways in terms of all the turmoil in terms of switching directors and brando and everything um it just adds so many more layers of difficulty to that uh that one than this one had
1: But look at the difference between these two movies. So look at the difference between when you have, now you have a committed director who's there from the start, right? Yep. You have a committed Val Kilmer who's not stealing people's roles and trying to, you know, basically just phone his his role in, you know, and you have all those tragedies and mishaps going on around you, and you're still able to put together a cohesive film. Mm-hmm. In the same year that Moreau was what Moreau was, you know.
2: Yeah.
0: No, and you're I right. Mean, so I mean, it
1: just shows the levels of I don't even know much. You know, it just it just shows what you're able to do when you have a clear vision and you have people. You know, because from that list you just read sounds like a horror show. Yeah. And yet you were still able to get a really competent, well-made B movie out of it. You know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I I enjoyed this one. I mean, this was this was a fun one at the at the time. It ended up winning uh, sound effects editing Oscar this year, and um, you know, I I think it's you know, I I like you were talking about the fact that they build up the line. the The natives think the lines have a supernatural element to them, a mystical element to them, and that's one of the things I really like about. It. And I think it's one of the things that that's it's impossible that's why you have somebody like William Goldman write the script to it, even though it's completely below the type of work that you expect from the director, the writer of All the President's Men and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride and a bunch of other great movies. But that's why you bring William Goldman in, because of the fact that he he understood the potential of this in respect to... Um, the fact that it could be fun, but the fact that it could also be a movie that, you know, had some el- interesting elements in it. And this is, this is kind of a good version of the type of movie Dr. Moreau did where it's like, you have these different genres in play and you have these different kind of ideas in play, but all of them feel cohesive and of a piece. And I, that's, that's how you have that's why it's so important to have a film or a screenwriter like William Goldman in, in the role in this case
1: sure I absolutely agree you know you're bringing a level of professionalism and again you know if you look at Butch Cassidy Butch Cassidy is you know it's a drama it's an action movie but it's got a lot of comedy in it it's got you know jokes and stuff but it never devolves into a total mess it's never like hey this isn't cohesive you know yeah. Whereas here, you know, like you said, this is basically a B movie. It's an action movie. It's got some horror elements, but because you have high-level professionals in there, you know, you're able to get a real film out of it. And anytime Jerry Goldsmith's slapping a score down on a film, I'm happy to listen to that score, Brian. Yeah, and this
0: and and this is a fun. This is a fun Goldsmith score, and it's like it. It's it's weird because I, 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 one my first soundtracks that I really kind of loved was a Goldsmith score and it was uh Congo, which is not a good movie. It's 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 a ridiculous, cheesy Michael Crichton adaptation. But Jerry Goldsmith scores it like it's to a certain he he scores it as seriously as anybody could score that movie. And I, I like that in a movie like this where you can and you can expect goldsmith to be jerry goldsmith and just be a terrific uh composer i mean is it is it among his most memorable no of course not but it sets it's a really good with the tone it really understands what it needs to be doing what it needs to be conveying in this movie and that's 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 all you need out of a movie like this and and that's all you need out of a score like this and he makes it a fun score to listen to
1: You know my love of Jerry Goldsmith. We've talked about him many times, but the greatest thing about Goldman, uh, about uh, Goldsmith, is his ability to adapt his stuff to the material. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, he's just, he's superb. And, you know, I've seen some movies lately, like I've watched some horror flicks where, right from the first scene, the score, the music is just screaming at me that this is a horror film, you know? And it's like this is not a well-used score because this is overplaying its hand. This is just mm-hmm. this is just jamming it down my throat. That hey, I'm watching. You know, it's a scene where two people are sitting in a, uh, a living room doing you know mundane stuff, and the score is screaming at me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not Goldsmith. Goldsmith knew how to adapt his material. I mean, and again. I, I, I the guy had great scores and I think Joe Dante gets some of the greatest use out of Goldsmith because mm-hmm. his, you know, Joe, I think Joe Dante and Goldsmith had similar sensibilities on what a score should be. And, you know, I just, I can't, uh, I just can't praise him enough. So, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, in you, you say Joe Dante and Jerry Goldsmith, the first thing that comes to mind is gremlins, which is just such a wonderful quirky offbeat score that does exactly what you're talking about where it's like it 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 adapts itself to the material and sometimes that material is very funny very goofy but also it can be scary as hell and that, yep, that's, one of the, that's one of the reasons Gremlins works so well
1: absolutely Gremlins is a totally different movie if it's got a different score to it I've always said that about Gremlins
0: yeah but now Jerry Goldsmith, I mean, he he's he's one of the best, and it's funny we we've talked. This is this is probably this year is probably the most I've talked about Goldsmith in a while because of the fact that uh, I talked about. I've actually actually I've talked to him on both uh, appearances on the binge movie podcast that I've talked that I've been on, and then we talked about him with the Omen, and then of course we're talking about him here, and. Uh, yeah he he's just such a he he was you you really definitely lost something when he uh when he passed away and you know it's it's a shame because compose you know he passed away you you kind of felt like he passed away too early you kind of felt like uh michael kamen passed away too early and then of course the when james horner passed away a few years ago uh, you You lost some real, some really distinctive voices in film, film music and it's really sad. And this is one of those films that shows how effective a film score could be from one of those masters.:
1: Absolutely. But yeah, it ends up being a really fun film, and I just you know is it great movie making? No, but is it a fun film? Is it something that I'd watch again? Absolutely. Ghost in the Darkness, definite thumbs up.
0: Yeah, same same with me. I I think if if I'm if we're ranking these, I think it's probably I I think I would put the the craft slightly ahead of this, but um I I do I do really I did really enjoy rewatching. Uh, Goes in the Darkness, one of the last things I'll say is it, it was a really I I'd forgotten the choice of having Remington die off screen. Uh that was that was an interesting choice. And there's a dream sequence in this that's as that is so telegraphed as what it is. It's ridiculous. And also I and at the climax of the movie was the climax of that sequence, I almost I almost laughed my ass off because of how absurd it was, but that's the type of thing that you get from a B movie where it's like you get these sequence, you get sometimes get a sequence where it's like oh, I see exactly where this is heading it's like no jeez there this really isn't happening this is a dream sequence, and then the way it the way it uh ends up just flattens you with just kind of how silly it is but uh no this this is a fun film i'm I'm glad i I'm glad I rewatched it. I'm glad that, um, you know, one of the things that I'm sort of gravitating towards are, are not just necessarily movies that I think are great, but movies that I enjoy watching and that, you know, even if, even if I haven't necessarily seen them now, while that uh, I, my memories of them are strong in how they entertain me. And this is a good example
1: of that. Absolutely. All right, so we got one left, right?
0: We do, and it is. I, I, I can simply say that it's quite frankly the best of the bunch for me. I, I want to say it's probably going to be the the same for you, but I don't know. I, I feel like we've talked about this a couple of times, and it's funny because of the fact yeah. that it's it's funny because this is made from a filmmaker that is the reason that you and I first met. Uh, because Heather um, suggested that I get in touch with you uh, and uh, you, she had kind of pitched me to you as being, as somebody to write a uh, remembrance on Wes Craven after he passed away in 2015.
1: Yeah, and, for Death Ensemble's Hall of Fame. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And uh, you can read that piece. It is on Song Cinema now. And uh, the the film that we're talking about, of course, is Wes Craven's Scream. Uh, it is the film that, you know, as we had I, uh touch, it came out in December. And I remember vividly going to see this for the first time in theaters and uh, it was it was one of those movies that this really started me into watching horror movies again after kind of some time away from the genre and uh it was it was certainly an impressive it it certainly kept me on my toes from jump street and it basically set off the it really more than even the craft really set the stage for what we were going to get in terms of team movies in the last half of the 90s
1: yeah it definitely set the um set the scene for what was going to be horror for the next couple years with post-ironic you know self-referential horror um unfortunately i will say and, and i will say that this is my favorite of the four as you suggested you thought it would be yeah. Uh the problem is that none of the films that came after this one in this subgenre, including the sequels to Scream, ever quite attained the heights that Scream did.
0: No, no, they didn't. Um, I, I will say I've always thought two I, I always thought Scream Two was very good as far as what it was trying to do as far as sequels. And I will uh I'll I'll go ahead and whenever I talk about the Scream movies, I do have to I, I do kind of feel like I have to mention this. Um so my mother, who was an actress and uh worked towards being an actress, and when we moved down to uh Georgia, uh she she actually was an extra in the cafeteria scene in Scream 2. And uh so she got to work with she got to be on the set with Wes and was a really sweet guy and Jerry O'Connell you know, it's the scene where Jerry O'Connell was saying to Nev Campbell, and you know that was that was terrific. You can you can kind of see her in the very very background of uh, some of the wide shots in that sequence. But uh, I always I always mention that whenever I talk about Scream on the uh, podcast, and um, so sort of for that reason, uh, this this series has always kind of met something a little bit more to me. But, like I said, it also kind of got me into uh watching horror again and um <clears throat> i had i had got i had watched the Friday thirteenth movie a lot of the Friday thirteenth movies and the first Nightmare on Elm Street really early, probably too early and uh it really kind of and i it got to the point where it was sort of a little bit of an obsession with me at the time, and my mom was kind of freaked out by that because of the fact that it was undead killers who would keep coming back and all of that stuff. And so <clears throat> almost because of that, I just kind of stopped watching those movies. I, I watched the first two because I had those taped, but the sequels I wouldn't watch until like 20, 25 years later. Um, Scream was one of the first ones I actively went to go see in theaters. And uh, I, I saw it a r- shortly after it came out in uh, December of 96. And it just, from, from the opening sequence, which is one of the best sequences I think Wes Craven has ever composed, uh, with uh, Drew Barrymore on the other end of the killer's phone call talking about scary movies, it, this movie just kind of shoots its shot right away. And... The, the plotting and the pacing of this movie in the script by Kevin Williamson is just so strong. In, it also is a great job of economy of uh, character building, too, because even in brief scenes, you understand who these characters are right away
1: absolutely you get a feel for these characters very quickly which is important you know a lot of the horror movies have what i call first kill and 30 so you get the first kill right at the beginning right which yeah. this pretty much does. it sets it up in the opening scene and then you get 30 minutes where nothing goes on and because most of these characters you know most a lot i shouldn't say most a good portion of 80s slashes specifically are like paper thin. So it's yeah. like, just get to the kills already because you're pouring the hell out of me and you're not really <laughs> developing these characters. Stream actually takes the time to develop these characters, which is nice. And that's part of the reason, that's part of its charm for me. Um, and I think that that, well, you and I had discussed this. We were on a, we were, we were Facebook chatting, I think it was a couple of years ago. And I believe the phrase you brought up was that this is next level writing and next level filmmaking for a horror flick. And I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think that Kevin Williamson nailed this down perfectly and that Wes Craven took this script and just made a total gem out of it. And I think that you couldn't ask for more out of both these guys. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's funny because of the fact that it's like this So let's talk
1: about Randy, because Randy's my favorite character.
0: Yeah, Jamie Jamie Kennedy is really good in this, and Randy is such a Randy's such a great character for this movie because of the fact that it's like if in with Kevin Williamson essentially making a treatise on horror movie tropes and movie tropes, it helps to have a character who's sort of ahead of the game and or but also one of the things that I like is that He's ahead of the game, but he's also a little bit behind it. And that's one of the things that I like about Randy. He's confident in his movie knowledge, but at the same time, when it comes to transmuting that to the real world, not so much. And I, I love the, no. the, the bounce that Jamie Kennedy does that.
1: I think that Jamie Kennedy, like, I started following him on YouTube about six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a really interesting YouTube channel. And because he's done a whole bunch of stuff in the industry. But one of the first things I watched was how he got cast in in Scream, And he goes through the process and he talked about, you know, basically how he loved West Craven. Everybody loves Wes Craven. Yeah. Everyone who's ever worked with him. I think he's like the greatest guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, going back to what your mother said, he just appears like this normal, sweet, gentle guy that you'd never think would have all these psychotic monsters in his head, you know? <laughs> but um, Rand- Randy, I think, is great because Randy's a total geek. Mm-hmm. And I love him because of that. And he's so obsessed with the idea of what should happen in a horror movie that, like you said, he's actually a couple steps behind The greatest is when he's he's on the couch, yeah, and he's it's it's at the party scene. It's just him on the couch laid out, and he's like he's watching Halloween, and he's like, "Don't go in there, Jamie. Don't don't do it, Jamie. You know you're gonna get killed, Jamie." And then the scream killer comes out behind him, so it's like he's saying, "You're gonna get killed, Jamie." And then it goes on a second level where it's like he's saying you're going to get killed, Jamie Kennedy, if you stay on this couch. It's really, really witty filming.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, the fact that it's so effective in not only playing to the in that in playing to the cliches while it's also pointing them out, it allows Craven and Williamson to build in a lot of interesting red herrings because. You you have the possibility that the father's involved. You have the possibility. Well, maybe it's Cotton Weary. You have obviously Billy as a possibility, and you you just build in all these different ideas, and uh, it's 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 a really fun game that they're playing in this. And this is and you know you've got Nev Campbell, and we we talked a little bit about this and uh, talked about the craft. This is. Sydney Sydney Prescott is one of the one of the more effective to a certain extent I almost you know based on what I've seen of the Halloween movies I I think to a certain extent she's almost a more interesting final character final you know final girl in a slasher movie than even Laurie Strode is in Halloween
1: that's a bold statement I'd have to think about that, but yeah, <laughs> she's definitely at least on the same level. Yeah, I mean, and the the thing that I like about the one of the things that I do like about the sequels, especially the second one, is that at that point she's a survivor, you know, and mm-hmm. her take on things is, "Hey, listen, this is some scary stuff going on, and I'm just trying to go through life having experienced this, you know. I lost my dad, I lost my mom, everybody's gone, you know, it's it's just." I lost my yeah. You know, I don't want to get into the details. Spoiler, keep it spoiler free. But you get the idea that yeah. she's certainly been affected by this. So the third one, the third one, she's off, you know, in some remote house somewhere, far away from Springwood, with you know, making taking phone calls as and trying to help other victims, which I thought was kind of a cool character development. Like we talked about this with the omen, where you know it's not a flat line. You actually get development with Damien. You get development with. With her her character as she goes throughout the movies, and mm-hmm. I always thought that was kind of cool.
2: Yeah,
0: no, and I I think to a certain extent. I mean, you you also look at uh Heather Langenkamp in her appearances in the Nightmare series, where you know you you look at Dream Warrior where she's in in she she's a therapist helping uh helping people going through uh difficult mental health issues, and then you look at even even though she's yep. essentially playing a heightened version of herself in New Nightmare, you can also look look at the fact that this is a, also an evolution <laughs> of Nancy by way of Heather Langenkamp yep. in New Nightmare. and That's one of the things that's so interesting about her in that movie as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with you on that. But it's also nice to see a strong female lead in these films, you know? Yeah. Like, you always... The, the Friday the 13th films are the ones where, you know, I think that's where they pretty much came up with the idea of the final girl, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. That
1: whole final girl mm-hmm. concept, which I coined sometime in the 90s, I think. But the thing is, like, Alice from the first Friday the 13th point is, you know, paper thin. Oh, Heather wow. Langen can you know, in in... Heather Langenkamp in in the the Elm Street movies or Nev Campbell here, you have an actual character with some meat on her that you can build on and actually root for and want to see survive one of these things, you know? Yeah, and I I think that to
0: a certain extent, I think that's Wes Craven. I mean, you you gotta think that's Wes Craven because, I mean, that's the common factor between the nightmare movies that uh, Heather Langenkamp is involved in, and that's and he obviously directed the first four scream movies but you also one one of my favorite movies and we were talking about B movies with the ghosts in the darkness another one that i really like that uh, Wes Craven did in the mid 80s was red eye with Rachel McAdams and so oh he, red eye is so awesome. Murphy
1: red eye is an awesome B movie yeah that fits right in what we were talking about all the ghosts in the darkness that is a fun film
0: yeah I really've always enjoyed that, and um, you know, he was coming off of the situation with *Cursed*, where with the uh, Miramax and Dimension, where that was kind of the, that was kind of a souring of that relationship after he had to go back do reshoots, and they just couldn't get right. And the yep. the movie that we've seen of that is just simply atrocious, and. um it's it's one of those things where it's like it, it's that's almost... where
1: that's where they decided to take Rick Baker's werewolf makeup and replace it with CGI. Yeah. So that is all I. That's the that's that's the be all and end all. That's all I have to say about that nightmare.
0: So. Yeah. But then you have him do Red Eye, which is just a very stripped down thriller, and it's and you really follow rachel mccams you really see her you really care about her going through that situation so to a certain extent i i think that's kind of it's kind of got to be west to a certain extent that is responsible for like that sort of deepening of the uh final the final girl uh trope in horror
1: movies well i remember i remember i don't remember where i saw it but Wes Craven said that he was watching, after he made Swamp Thing, he was watching Swamp Thing with his daughter. And I think there's a part where Adrian Barbeau falls down. And his daughter was like, you know, dad, girls don't have to always fall down in horror movies. And that informed a big part of the way he wrote Nancy for, you know, for Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think that just carried through where, You know, you get some strong female leads in his movies. Like they're not paper thin. They're not just there to fucking hang around until everyone else is dead. That they actually, my favorite thing about, and I talked to Heather Langenkamp when I met her at a con a bunch of years ago. You know, and I said to her, one of my favorite things about about Nancy is that she's proactive. Yeah. She doesn't sit around and wait for people to do stuff to her. She plans, she's well organized, she's analytical, she's intelligent, and she brings in Heather Langan all after that character on the screen. And Wes Craven did that with his script, and I think that's wonderful. I think you see parts of that in Sydney, and I think you see some of that, like you said, in Rachel McAdams in Red Eye.
2: Yeah.
0: No, and it, it's a, and, and, you know, to a certain extent, you also, even, even with, um, Gail Weathers, the Courtney Cox character, you see some of that too, and you know I, the part. The initial thrill of Courtney Cox's performance in this is obviously she's kind of playing a spin on Monica Geller from Thren, friend She's control freak. She's somebody who always feels like she has to get her way, but it's also at the service of something that's scary, as opposed to something that's supposed to be funny. And, um, but you also see her, she's, she, she's taking, she, she has some agency in how she does things and you see her, see that in her relationship with Dewey and David Arquette and it's the, the way that they, the way that they build these, these female characters in, or at least the two main ones, um. As I mean, Drew Barrymore, she's very much the girl to who dies first, and I mean, but that was one of the surprises of that sequence where it's like, oh, it's Drew Barrymore, oh hey, it's Gertie from E.T., oh hey, she she's going to die right o- off the bat, and then you have well, her... that's
1: the whole, but that's that's a, that's the whole Janet Lee and Psycho thing. You think yeah. Drew Barrymore, especially because I don't I don't know if you remember. I remember specifically back in 96, the posters, like Drew Barrymore was prominent on the posters.
2: Oh, so she you thought was she was going to be, there,
1: especially like you said.
2: Yeah, she Pretty was the poster. That. So you figure that,
1: yeah, that's right. You figure that this is going to be her, you know, she's going to be the driving star here. And then like 10 minutes later, oh my God, you killed Drew Barrymore. Yeah. <laughs> but right from the outset, you know, That's Kevin Williamson playing with expectations, and that's Wes Wes Craven playing with what you expect out of a slasher. And that was, you know, at the time, I mean, unfortunately, that inspired a whole slew of copycats the next couple years. And the whole thing got watered down to the point where, you know, it made me appreciate Scream that much more because Scream was an innovator when it came to that stuff.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. No, and even even a role like the principal, having the way Henry Winkler plays that character, it's like you're so used to what high school principals and high school authority figures kind of are, and you look at something like the craft, it kind of plays to that, but then having Henry Winkler in this role, it's like he's somebody who genuinely is empathetic about this situation, and he wants to get resolved, and he's also not going to take any shit until he ends up getting killed over it. Um, yep. And uh, part, of, part of what makes Will, Williamson's script so so good, I talked about the, the character building here. Um, every character is really well written. Uh, whether it, and it goes off of archetypes, and it helps that the, performance are, the performers are really good in these, in these roles. I mean, even, even, you know, even Gail's cameraman is memorable and has, you know, has some good moments in it and, um, with him. And then Matthew Lillard in, in his role is just, mm. as Stu is just, he, he's very funny until he isn't. And even then, he can still be pretty funny.
1: Yes, Totally. So how do you feel about this Scream 5 coming out? I mean, I, I don't know how to feel about this because, you know, it's not going to be Wes Craven, obviously. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious to see what they do with it. I'm also kind of hoping that they're going to do something interesting with it because it just, from the trailer, I'm I'm just hoping this is not another retread of the first four films, you know?
0: Yeah, that's kind of my worry with it as well. I mean, I want to see it, but it's, it's definitely not so- the the trailers haven't really drawn me into it. I mean, yeah, it's gonna be hard to it, it's gonna be hard without Wes Craven. But at the same time, I mean, the so the filmmakers behind it are also responsible for Ready or Not from a couple of years ago, which I know a lot of people like. I think it, I thought it was all right. Um, you know, it's like there there are things about that were you know okay, but I didn't I didn't love it quite as much as. Other people did, so I and with Kevin Williamson back into the fold as I think a producer. I don't know that he actually wrote the script. I'm I'm hopeful that it will be good, but at the same time, and then you have Courtney Cox and F. Campbell and David Arquette coming back. But I just don't. I I really just don't know at this point. I mean, I know a lot of people really like Scream Four. I haven't seen it since. I saw it theatrically, so I, I'm going to rewatch all of those uh, before I uh, before I see the new one, and we'll we'll see how I feel about it.
1: I liked Scream Four. I just think it didn't do enough. Like that was that came out around the time that J Horror was big, and the remake, you know, yeah. boom on that. Yeah, and I'm like, if you're having movies that are commenting on horror, uh, if they if their commentary on the horror genre, and you want to keep it current, like they should have had some of the J stuff in there. They should have, you know, they, they should have included some of the stuff with uh, commentary on remakes. And, you know, it just ended up being a little more of the same. And I'm afraid that the same thing's going to happen with this one now. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's one of my biggest concerns with it. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. Um, hopefully, hopefully it's one of those things. Hopefully it's one of those things where they don't, uh, kind of bungle it um like like some other uh horror movies have that have come back other horror franchises and have come back i haven't seen i haven't seen halloween kills yet but i mean i i i like the 2018 one it was but i've heard really rough things about the the halloween kills and you know i i just kind of hope It'll, it'll be interesting to see how I feel about that one, and uh, but yeah, it, legacy sequels are. I I have so many mixed feelings about legacy sequels, but um, yeah, we'll see.
1: Well, all right. So we had to go through Moreau, but we definitely ended up on a high note, and that's good.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and that's part of the reason why I wanted to go in this order because of the fact that ending with Scream is kind of is kind of ending on a uh, high note, sort of to sort of to finish up my thoughts on Scream. I, I like that Ghostface is clumsy in this and I think that's one of the things that I like about this killer in particular is that Ghostface is easily, recognizably human. He's not a super yes, natural uh, entity and I think that's, that's good. Sort of like The Craft I think this has a uh, really strong song score and I think this is a really terrific one and uh, Marco Beltrami just does a fantastic score with this and he, he's he gone on to be one of the better composers in Hollywood
1: yeah he definitely knocked it out of the park on this one
0: yeah and he, he, was, he was one of uh, Miramax's guys for a while and that's one of the and so but he's gone on to get Oscar nominated for um, I think The Hurt Locker I want to say he got nominated for 310 to Yuma and he's he's done other some other really good scores along the way but um yeah uh this this was this so this this was a fun uh it was fun going through all of these movies or all three of the four movies I mean we we talked about how <laughs> awful Dr Moreau was but honestly it's like I'm glad that I've seen that movie again so that I can definitively say that I never have to see that movie again. Um,
1: absolutely <laughs> but, and uh, as I promised you next time I come on we can talk about the Bicycle Thief and Italian Neorealism
0: yeah absolutely we'll uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go to uh, yeah we'll go to uh, Victorio De Sica, Roberto Rossellini yeah we'll we'll, we'll touch on <laughs> all of the greats here um, which actually doesn't sound like a horrible idea but no even if we're talking about horror movies again even bad movies of course uh, Phil Phil was always welcome on the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh we we have occasionally <laughs> talked about good films. We've talked about really good films over the years.
1: <laughs> well, I'm just gonna say that it's always my pleasure to be here. I've told you that every time I've been on and it stands today, and I'm proud to be the purveyor of the putrid <laughs> on the Sonic Cinema podcast. <laughs>
0: I, I think it's I, I think it I think my feelings were because of the fact that Moreau really the the horrible the awfulness of Moreau really hit me in a way that I didn't expect it to hit me. Uh so it was it was it was an in the in the moment feeling. Um but no uh, yes, obviously it's, it's like the
1: cinematic but it's like it's like the cinematic equivalent of getting kicked in the balls. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I can say a lot of bad things. look, there are a lot of bad things. I mean, I've I've talked about Ed Wood films here, but I didn't even feel quite as kicked in the proverbial kicked in the balls about with those movies the way I did with Moreau. And some of those movies are awful, but um they're, they're also a little bit more fun than Moreau. Moreau just depresses the living shit out of me. Yes. But uh, yeah, as, no, as always, Phil, thank you very much for <laughs> joining me to uh, discuss horror and just discuss movies in general.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. My pleasure, as always.
0: That's it for this episode of the Songs of a Podcast. Thank you, as always, to Phil Fasso for joining me to talk about horror, even if it is a uh, terrible horror movies like The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um I hope you uh take it I'm hope you enjoyed this discussion. And I hope you enjoy the uh best of nineteen ninety-six discussion. This was an interesting year. That's a uh that's a that's something I didn't necessarily expect to do at the beginning of the year, but it's something that I'm really glad that I did because it gave me a chance to rewatch a lot of films that I hadn't seen in a while. And um that's gonna be it for this episode of the Song Cinema podcast. I will be covering Sundance again this year, so you can Look for my podcast on that and coverage on that. I am going to be covering uh, the Rangade Film Festival uh, that was previously known as the Women in Horror Film Festival. I'm really looking forward to doing that. Have some uh, great guests that I'm going to have on this year, and uh, that's gonna be it. Check us out at the Song Sima Podcast on YouTube as well as Apple, Google, and Spotify wherever you. Get your podcasts as well as patreon.com backslash but most importantly www.sonic-cinema.com Thank you very much. <laughs>